This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Hello, I'm Jim and welcome to the Excess Long Player, a celebration of some of the greatest indie albums of all time. And today it is an album that has celebrated a very special anniversary. Released back in 1997, it is the 25th birthday of Oasis's third album, Be Here Now. An often criticised album, but in my view, an absolutely superb collection of songs that would be held in much higher regard had it not been for the previous two albums which set the bar so high for Oasis. On this podcast we're going to look back at the creation and recording of Be Here Now with some of the people who were in the room when it was being made. You're going to hear three interviews on this podcast. First we're going to hear from Brian Cannon who is the longtime Oasis collaborator, the man behind Microdot Studios and the design genius that came up with the cover art for Be Here Now. You're also going to hear from Nick Brine who was the engineer on this album alongside producer Owen Morris so was in the room for every single one of the album sessions and you're going to hear from Nick Ingham dubbed the George Martin of Oasis, who had the responsibility for arranging the strings and the brass sections on Be Here Now, of which there are plenty. You're also going to hear the thoughts of James throughout this podcast from the Oasis podcast, which is the go-to podcast for any Oasis fan. So listen out for his thoughts on Be Here Now as well. In fact, that's who you're going to hear from first, as the XS Long Player celebrates a quarter of a century of Be Here Now. My name's James. I'm from Oxfordshire. I've been an Oasis fan since late 1994 when I was 14. And since 2017, I've been running the Oasis podcast, which is the ultimate audio guide to Oasis. Be Here Now is my favourite album. Um, And I think it's generally the favourite album for people that love Oasis. I think Definitely Maybe is the coolest Morning Glory is probably the best overall, to be fair, but Be Here Now is just so full of passion and exuberance and joy that if you really, really love Oasis, this is your favourite album. How are you doing, Brian? I'm very well indeed. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for coming on. So we're talking about Be Here Now today, which was undoubtedly an album that came out at the very height of Oasis's fame and 
I think it was an album that when you listen to it, you can tell the band they wanted to make a statement with this album. You were obviously responsible for making a statement when it came to how the album would look on shelves in the likes of Our Price, if you remember that. What was the brief that you were given when you were designing the artwork for Be Here Now? The br- <laughs> I, I was very rarely actually given a brief by Oasis, other than, you know, you've got to do a sleeve and a certain date to do it by. The way it worked is it would always be Noel Gallagher and me talking about it. He would brief me. Sometimes, well, most of the time, he'd say, I have no idea what this, what I want on this one. It's up to you, Brian. On other occasions, he would be very specific, like some might say, for example, where it was all the lyrics to the song. Mm. But in this case, he just said, um, get on with it. And the initial idea was actually going to be each band member could choose any location in the world where they wanted to be, and we would fly the band member to that location, photograph them there, and then the sleeve would be a quadrant sort of design, four pictures, each band member, and then Liam Gallagher was going to be superimposed in the middle, hovering over all four of them. And they came up with some pretty interesting locations. Noel chose, I thought this was interesting. You know that flat top mountain that's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Yeah. Where the aliens land. He wanted to go there. Gwigsy wanted to be on a beach in Barbados, probably smoking weed. <laughs> uh, and Bonehead came up with the idea of the, the, the Rolls Royce in the swimming pool. Now, the reason that didn't go ahead was nothing to do with budget because they could afford to do whatever they wanted. Mm. And to be honest, what we did in the end probably cost more anyway, but it was scrapped, that idea, because we just didn't have time. They were remarkably busy at that time to fly everybody all around the world and then you know, do that. So that was the initial idea, which then got whittled down to the Rolls Royce in the pool with all the uh, nonsensical objects scattered around, which meant nothing, really. Well, you mentioned the the cost and the budget involved. When you look at that album cover, it looks expensive. Was it as expensive as it looks? I mean, dumping a Rolls Royce in a swimming pool for a start, that's got to be a pretty hefty cost associated with that. I I could be wrong here, but I cannot imagine that there is a more expensive record that we've ever created because... I think when all was considered, when everybody, when everything was considered, that was, it cost 75 grand. And that's, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. But not the, the, one of the smallest parts that cost was actually the car itself, because that, was, that wasn't a running Rolls Royce. We didn't buy a Rolls Royce and throw it in a swimming pool. That, that was a scrap one that we, we hired for a thousand pounds and gave back. There was no engine in it and it wasn't running. So, you know, it's not like. Oh my God, the, the, the car must have cost a fortune. It didn't. The car was a grand. But just the logistics of doing it was what was expensive. Do you remember what the most expensive single part of that set was? Uh, obviously, as a design agency, we got a fee. That was probably it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but then, you know, it's not like I got paid our fortune. I got mm. staff. I had offices in London to pay for and all the rest of it. Compared to the amount of work that went into it, they got a mm. bargain. I mean, you know, I often say this. We, we, did, we never put a clock on our designs. And by that, what I mean is if we was given a budget of like a thousand pounds, say, all the other design agencies would have said, say, for argument's sake, they were working at £50 an hour. They would allocate 20 hours to that job. We never did that. We, yeah. I just carried on going until I thought the job was finished to the, the standard that it deserved to be finished to. So you know, it took months. It, it, I mean, the most difficult thing was finding a swimming pool that somebody was prepared to let us put a Rolls Royce in. That was the difficult bit. And then, you know, when you just drive it in, there's a whole, there's a mm. crane involved and, you know, there's just people are getting paid left, right and centre all the way down the line. I tell you what was one of the big uh, expenses on of the sleeve the bar bill because that that <laughs> shot I'm serious about this as well that shot was um, 
it was taken at the Stocks Hotel in Hertfordshire, which was like a golf resort sort of hotel. And there's obviously a bar in the hotel and a lounge area. And all day long, waitresses were coming out with trays of drinks for anybody who wanted one. And Creation Records just had a tab on the... And we, we didn't pay for this, actually. Creation Records had a tab on the bar. Well, I wasn't drinking, obviously, because I was working. But by the evening time, we did some shots in the evening when it had gone dark. Bonehead was so drunk, he couldn't actually stand up. All the shots, are in, <laughs> he sat, sat down. Um, so that was a massive expense, I guess. Did you have to keep it under wraps, what you were doing? When you were talking to these hotels and looking for locations, did you have to keep the Oasis name out of it? Not least because the Gallagher's had a reputation at this point in their careers for being hellraisers so people might not have wanted them in their hotel or their location but because they were big names and there was it might have got out what you were planning should you have mentioned them in a conversation well it did get out I mean the mad thing is right we, we shot everything on film then so you never saw the results of what you shot until at least the following day if not a couple of days now bear in mind the following day we were still on site we stayed mm. at that hotel. I got up for breakfast the following morning. This is no word of a lie, this. I got up for breakfast the following morning, and I'm having <laughs> breakfast in the hotel, and somebody said to me, yeah, Brian, you might want to look at this. And somebody passed me a copy of the Sun newspaper, and in the centre pages was the photograph of the scene that we'd taken the day before. They'd wow. actually got it out before we had. So somebody at the hotel had tipped them off, and they just posed as sort of people who were going golfing at the hotel, I guess. And, you know, we didn't think anything of it. Some guy there with a camera, he took some pictures, winds up at the centre, spread of the sun. And then what they also did, now I knew this was coming. This was kind of the, the joke, really, that all those objects on the front sleeve, they don't mean anything. I went along to a props warehouse in White City in London with Liam and Noel and just said, pick whatever you want to put on the sleeve. So, you know, the big hourglass and the mm. abacus and just everything came from there. And it doesn't mean anything. And the idea was, I thought Oasis are so massive by this point, because they were, that people are going to dissect and try to find meaning in everything. And that's precisely what the sun had done. So whilst they trumped us in terms of getting the image out before us, they, they look stupid in the end because there's, oh, yes, by this he means that, and by that he means this. And none of it meant anything. So the joke was on them, really. I remember that exact page in the sun, and I remember yeah. the conversation around, because you're right, exactly what you said happened happened people were debating what meant what and it was kind of like a bit of a paul is dead scenario wasn't it yeah, in, in the, yeah, yeah it was it was it created a conversation around the album well yeah that that was i knew, I knew that would happen and that's why we did it i mean there, mm. there are some little things that do actually make, like for example we changed the registration plate on the rolls royce from whatever it was at the time to the talking about the paul is dead rumor it was the the police van on the front of abbey road Mm. It's the same number plate. So that, that's the only sort of thing that connects to anything. Other than that, I think it's all just nonsense. How much of the inspiration behind the album cover came from the music directly? Had at this point when you came to build the album cover and come up with your ideas, had you listened to the album? Had you kind of absorbed themes and ideas from it? Or did they yeah. develop completely separately? I always listened to the... I, I would always insist on getting lyric sheets off Noel. I'd normally spend... I spent as much time in the studio as the band did when they were recording just to get my head around it all. Right. So, you know, and I think without a shadow of a doubt, that sleeve fits that record, doesn't it? You know, people complain how, how, how over bloated and overproduced it is. And well, you know, you could say that the sleeve's a visual representation of it. It's just excess, isn't it? In, in manifested there. So, yeah. Did you recognize the boys when they're working on this album? Because 
you worked with them from their early days in Burnage and saw the development of Oasis and the way they changed as personalities at that point because I mean it's really a relatively short period of time between this album coming out and definitely maybe the debut coming out not really no you know I think this is all you've got to get your head around the fact that this change in this this personalities is just what the media represented anyway and it was Mm. just their version of what you know they were just the same you know pretty much still are today I was saying this the other day Noel Gallagher for that matter, all of them, you know, to, to go through that amount of scrutiny and fame and intense media obsession day in, day out, for that not to screw your head up, it's just incredible, really. And I still think they're remarkably level-headed people. So, no, I don't think they did change that much. I mean, there was, you know, there were stories of them falling out in the studio more, but that's just brothers, I guess, isn't it? The rest of the band weren't falling out. No, I don't recognise any any massive particular. I think that was a media invention, to be honest. What were those studio sessions like? Because if you were there involved and you were listening to it, were they kind of a a fairly relaxed affair? Were there tensions? I I wasn't there for most of Be Here Now, I must admit. I was there for the entirety of Morning Glory. You've got to understand that because they didn't write as a band. Noel Gallagher wrote the songs. Noel Gallagher wrote the lyrics. So... It was just a case of when they went into the studio, and they'd obviously rehearsed before they got to a studio position. They, mm-hmm. they would know the songs inside out, so there was, it was remarkably quick. There weren't one of these bands, I guess, like Pink Floyd or something, that spends months in the studio experimenting and changing this and changing that. No one had written a song. He knew exactly what it should sound like. They were all great musicians. Bonehead, probably the best musician of the lot. They all knew the parts inside out. They went in within a couple, you know, I mean, Morning Glory was done in a fortnight. I mean, that's just amazing. Being out took longer, admittedly. But I think, you know, they had to change studios for a number of reasons. But the actual physical recording, there was never any hiccups there because they knew what they were doing. And like I said, they didn't write together. No had it all done before they went in. You did spend some time in the studio, obviously, because I believe you appear musically on the album at some point. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I've this, I do unclaps on all around the world, and I, I think my feet. Having said that, the, the footsteps at the end of mine—that's my shoes. Uh, okay, that was recorded. I think that was reco- he recorded that. I'm sure he recorded. I could be wrong here, but I think that was from the Morning Glory sessions. That's something he kept and tacked on to the end. Owen Morris, I mean. Yeah, so um, yeah, I appeared on it, and um, it just you know, we're just one big happy family back then, I suppose. Mm. What's your favourite track on this album before we finish, Brian? When you look at Be Here Now, do you have a standout moment when you listen to it? I think, do you know what I mean? It's an amazing track. Opener still is an amazing song. I love that. I love the single artwork. You know, I mean, Be Here Now gets a lot of stick. I mean, it, especially from Noel even. But, you know, I still think, I think his problem with it is more the production than the songs, I, I would have guessed. But I think it's a, still, it's a great record, isn't it? I absolutely love it as a record, and I think it. Yeah. if it hadn't been for the rec- the albums that came before, if it hadn't been for Definitely Maybe and Morning Glory being the standard they were, it would yeah. get far more credit for being the yeah. album it is. And it's still great anyway, you know, even yeah. with that. I, I still think it's a great record. Yeah, it is. Brian, thank you very much for speaking to me on the Excess Long Player. Really appreciate your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Magic Pie, I feel, gets very unfairly maligned. It's a lot of people's least favourite song. 
on Be Here Now. I still think it's a really fantastic song. I think that probably because it's over seven minutes long and it's relatively slow paced, that's why it does get a bit of negativity from the fan community. But I think as an overall piece, it's remarkable. It's so well produced. There's so much going on all through it, including a toilet flushing at one point. And it just really shows how many ideas and how creative they were at this time. I love the ending. The fact that you've got this sort of huge crescendo and a Noel shouting, shut up. But then even then it goes into like a jaunty bit of kind of guitar and stuff at the end. It's like they had so many ideas, they couldn't just end a song. They just had to keep going. Nick Bryan, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Jim. Appreciate you speaking to me on the Exus Long Player tonight. Now, none but the most obsessed and dedicated Oasis fans will probably recognise your name in connection with the band, but they Mm. will certainly have heard your work. So explain briefly how you fit into the puzzle of Be Here Now. Okay, so I met the band, first of all, when they were recording, definitely maybe in Mono Valley Studios in Monmouth. I was working at Rockfield with Stone Roses. I met Oasis there. I ended up then being the studio engineer on What's the Story when they came to Rockfield with Owen to do that record because I'd started working with Owen on all his records at that point. And then that just carried on then into Be Here Now with Owen obviously still being the producer on that record and me doing all of Owen's records with him. So off I went on the, uh, the, the journey that was Be Here Now. There's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, from the Stone Roses album recording to definitely maybe to What's the Story, but we're talking exclusively about Be Here Now today as it celebrates its 25th anniversary. Does it feel like a quarter of a century ago that you were sitting the other side of the glass watching this album come together? No, I can't believe it. And just, yeah, a whole lifetime. Well, some things kind of in in the... very distant past but some things just feel like yesterday still there's certain moments recording that album which have just stuck with me and they just feel like it was just not so long ago really yeah it just what a journey from then until now but mm. uh, yeah 25 years it's hard to uh, it's hard to believe that's how long it is do those memories get triggered by certain pieces of music from the album so if you're listening to the radio and i don't know all around the world or something comes on do yeah. you get instantly transported back to particular points in time yeah, so for instance, when you, you mentioned that, when that comes on, the first thing that comes into my mind is Liam skipping around the room, dancing about behind Nick, while there's a 72-piece orchestra trying to professionally play the track. Um, <laughs> that's a memory that comes straight away. There's other things like, do you know what I mean? If that comes on, I can immediately picture us all standing there listening to Liam do his vocals. Yeah, definitely elements of that album, but you're transported back to that, that moment in time straight away. Now, during the sessions themselves, only yourself and the producer you already mentioned, Owen Morris, was present for every single session on the album. Why was that? Was that just because you were part of the Inner Sanctum? Was it because it was an intense album to make? Or was it because, now when I spoke to Brian Cannon, he talked about there was an element of secrecy around the album because of the attention that was on the band at that period. So why was it just yourself and Owen that would be there for all the sessions? Yeah, there was a lot of secrecy, a lot of um, security around that album. There was a lot of press intrusion, a lot of people trying to get into the studios to get copies of tapes. So every night I'd have to make sure everything was locked away, put away, nothing left around. Not really, unless there was the parties, which were regular. Then <laughs> when it was work when it was work time, it was just down to me, Owen, the band. Mark Coyle was obviously there and Phil Smith was there. So they were pretty much there almost every session. There was just the odd one where it was literally just me and Owen and whoever we were working with from the band. But yeah, it was tight security, a lot of, lot of things going on trying to keep it under wraps, trying to keep the press out. 
yeah, it was hard, hard work at times. I mean, we'd have the odd assistant in there from the studios, but otherwise it was just me and Owen with the ever-presence with Mark and Phil mm. being there for the majority of it as well. Now, I understand the demos for the album pre-studio were pretty stripped back completely compared to how the final LP came out, which is this great big wall of sound style production. Yeah. When you and Owen first got your hands on those stripped back demos... Could you hear how it was going to end out or was it kind of a, a process? Did it just build and build and build as you went on? Well, the, Owen was involved in those demos. So Owen, Owen kind of you know, knew them knew them inside out anyway. Um, and then he played into a few of us in the studio. Um, we just thought, first thing we thought is, wow, we've got another great collection of songs. Some of them we'd heard before because some of them Noel had a lot earlier on than, than Be Here Now as well. So we'd heard some of them. But the first time we heard the demos, we just thought, wow, these are, Massive, massive songs again. And then, you know, Owen and those things, we're going to make a big wall of sound. You know, how many tracks can we get on the tape machine, Nick? And I was like, well, you know, it's 48, so that's not enough. So we went to a digital tape machine (laughs) because you could get 48, you could link two machines together, you could get, which meant you could get 96 tracks. So so we went on to uh, two Sony digital tape machines just so we could get more tracks to fill it with more guitars. And the song wasn't finished until every track had uh, had been used up. Was that a deliberate attempt to do something spectacular, something yeah. big, to kind of do Oasis's, I don't know, dark side of the moon moment, I guess? Yeah, it was. Yeah, the water sound and like talking about the guitar parts was, rather than just trying to get one great sound, it was like, we use this guitar to fill out the bottom end, we'll have this for the kind of hard mids, and then we'll have this for the fuzzy top end. So, And then mic, there was multiple mics as well, so just doing one guitar part could take up nine tracks. Wow just for one guitar part, and then we'd double track it, and then we'd put one in the middle as well, so the triple track, and then it was obviously the layers and the other parts. So yeah, it was something that they consciously decided to do before the album. That was that was the plan, make it as kind of big, kind of in your face, as big as we could. You mentioned that some of the songs came from the early sessions from What's the Story. I think there might be a couple that are from the Definitely Maybe sessions. I might be yeah. wrong there. When you listen back to the album, can you identify which tunes? Because it it's a condensed period of time. It's not like the normal album, yeah. three-year break, album, three-year break. It's, what, three, four years between Definitely yeah, Maybe and Being Out coming out? Yeah, it was one after another, wasn't it? It was in do an album, go out, tour it, go back in the studio, record another one. So, very, you know, amazing, prolific period for them that time yeah i mean do we just remember hearing lots of songs some ended up being b-sides on on be here now which i think some of the b-sides of that album of the singles of that album are just amazing i mean their b-sides oasis b-sides in general are probably the best collection of b-sides you'll mm. ever get from any band early songs especially all around the world it was like i'm going to keep this song because we need a 72 piece orchestra we're not ready for the 72 piece orchestra and what's the story so that's for album three where we're in abbey road or wherever we actually did it in air in the end but um that's for album three where we can get the massive orchestra we can get so and so to be on it so yeah there was constant decisions made about that that needs to be a massive tune with this massive orchestra therefore we can't do it at rockfield for that album that'll be album three there's a few he had he had quite early on you mentioned those songs left over isn't it yeah, bands would kill for that, wouldn't they? Most bands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll save that one for album three when you're still yeah. on album one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Abbey Road then. Obviously, the sessions for this album started off at Abbey Road, but then they travelled between various different studios and locations. Yeah. Why did the switch happen? Because obviously Abbey Road is significant studio space, particularly for Oasis and their love of the Beatles, etc., etc. So why did yeah. you end up moving away from that space? Well... 
Obviously, they'd done Rockfield because of the the Roses thing. That was their ambition, that one. They'd done definitely maybe at Mono Valley. Then the Roses had been in Rockfield, so they wanted to go there. And then for the third album, the big the big album with the big, bigger budget was to go to Abbey Road. because obviously the Beatles connection, big open room for the big drum sounds. Um, and we did spend a couple of weeks there. We got pretty good results on some things and others not so. And it was just a few things that, that were going on. And the press intrusion was pretty full on at that point and got a bit much we just thought about getting out of london so off we went to ridge farm in in surrey a bit more secluded residential studio so everyone didn't have to travel and have the hassle of kind of being constantly chased or harassed by um the paparazzi and whoever was waiting outside the studio so we moved from there and then that we were there for quite a while good few weeks and then back to London when we start when we finished all the backing tracks for overdubs. But again, we had to keep moving studios just because of the the press intrusion and kind of the constant worry of things getting leaked and tapes going missing and things like that. So we we tried a few different studios. I mean, we went back and forth to air quite a bit after that. But we try. I think we went to Master Rock in Kilburn as well. So yeah, lots of different studios. I remember at the time there being a suggestion when Oasis left Abbey Road that part of the reason they'd left or left slash being kicked out was because complaints from the other people using the studio at the time that they were just making too much noise <laughs> yeah yeah that did happen i mean there was a couple of those, <laughs> couple of those incidences so there was a time when noel was working i think he was recording an acoustic guitar in a corner somewhere and the orchestra from studio one next door had just finished their thing and decided oh the way are recording there we'll just walk straight in and have a look at all their equipment so they're walking in marveling at all the equipment all gasping talking away and they all sat in a corner doing a take of a, an acoustic so they all got shouted at and booted out pretty quickly um <laughs> and then another incident was when uh, i think it was a conductor from from the studio next door was doing a film score i think and uh, we, we used to monitor pretty loud owens obviously known he walks in the studio he turns the volume up full and it stays there until he leaves however many weeks later um <laughs> and all the faders go up to the top that's where they're supposed to be so this this conductor uh, or arranger walks in and just starts screaming. And I was again sat there doing a guitar take, and Owen, me and Owen sat there and just starts screaming at us, Can you please turn this music down? I've got bottom end all over my cellos. Uh, I think he might have swore, I think he might have swore a bit as well. And uh, you can imagine, like, not even knocking on the door or not even talking or asking politely, you can imagine the response he got from Noel. Yeah, I was politely asked to uh, get out of the uh, studio. And I think that was the final straw, really, because they were getting regular complaints, but someone burst in like that mid-take and kind of, we're like, we're a rock and roll band trying to make a rock and roll record mm. in a rock and roll studio. So yeah, that was that was one of the one of the reasons that we left in the end. Nick, I could pick your brain on this all day, but I'm going to ask you one final question. I imagine yeah. Be Here Now as an engineer was a challenging record to work on because, as you've already said, all the different tracks and the wall of sound approach and the amount of different things that are going on on that album. Is there a moment from it when you listen to it where you sit back and go, I nailed it there? That was that's a fine piece of work. You can actually hear your handiwork on the album. I think in general, just listening to the to the whole album. I love the sound of the album. I love the kind of how over the top it is. I think it was the right time to make that record. I guess there's moments there's moments on on the on the guitars, on things like I hope I think I know, stuff like that. you just listen to it and you go, Yeah, that's that's uh, absolutely nailed the uh, you know, what you have in your head kind of mm-hmm. beforehand. But yeah, I mean Owen would kind of responsible for from an engineering point of view it was quite it was a lot of tracks a lot of tapes so a lot of my work was making sure things weren't getting recorded over make sure the tapes were marked 
there was a lot of that going on and multiple, multiple, multiple miking and switching out amps all the time. So I was kind of on the go mm. all the time with that. We're kind of owing at the desk really because it was it was a two man job to kind of get that done and being on tape is everything is so much more laborious as well than being on Pro Tools nowadays. Yeah. Do you think um, it'd be a different album if it was recorded digitally rather than analog so if it wasn't on tape if it was all kind of on hard drives and whatnot do you yeah. think the result would be different yeah i think that was a lot of albums especially from that period because there's a temptation now to fix a lot of things to mm. tighten everything up to edit all the life out of it i mean no one is not really that kind of producer he likes to capture the performance and leave all that in really so maybe not but yeah pr- probably i mean some things would have been a lot quicker some of the things we were trying to attempt that can just be done really quickly on something, something like pro tools now might have been quicker but I don't know, maybe we would have gone even further because you have unlimited tracks. So having the limited, being limited to just the 96 tracks was maybe a bit of a godsend <laughs> in the end. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think maybe some of the editing would have, some of that would have been, I don't know, because Owen's not really, wouldn't have really been one of those to, to go over the top with that. Well, Nick, lovely to speak to you about Be Here Now. Happy anniversary. Yeah, uh, I hope you're going to celebrate with a nice glass of red or yeah, something. And uh, thank Definitely. you very much for your time on the XS Long you're Player. welcome. Cheers. Be Here Now was the first Oasis album that was fully written after they'd already achieved such high levels of success. And so you can really hear that in a lot of the lyrics. A lot of them have got these, it's like a triumphant feel to them. There's a lot of that in the lyrics. Another interesting thing I think about, I hope I think I know, if you listen to the very start, there's like a little bit in the opening riff just before the main guitar line comes in. Where it's it's almost like there's a little mistake in there. And I don't know if it's meant to be there, but I just think it's cool that they've left it in. And I hope I think I know you sort of think of it as one of the short ones on the album. But even that, it's over four minutes 20. Um, so it's sort of the one of the just the quick little album tracks and yet it's still well over four minutes they were just so up for it on this album that even like a quick album track ended up being you know what would be a very long track on most albums nick ingman welcome to the podcast thank you very much nick you've been referred to as the george martin of oasis i'm just wondering how that comparison sits with you uh, very badly uh, <laughs> okay. i wouldn't uh, dare to equate myself with george martin no, I, I, I know the reference because I did the strings on a lot of the Oasis tracks and George Martin did a lot of ditto with the Beatles, but that's where the similarity ends. Well, I can certainly hear the influences are similar in the records from my point of view. We're focusing on Be Here Now today for this conversation, but you're a man who's been involved with Oasis on a fair few records previous to that, not least the master plan and the iconic strings in whatever. That's a record that's got your thumbprints all over it. But when Noel Gallagher came to you or the creation team came to you and told you about the plans for be here now where it wasn't going to be a few strings here and there it wasn't going to be a brass section on something like round our way it was going to be all singing all dancing big orchestra big production what was your reaction to hearing that news i thought it was a great idea my only immediate concern was the bigger the orchestra the in many ways the bigger the problems because they're less easy to in quotes control in other words obviously rock and roll music is free and easy, uncontrollable in some sense, but an orchestra isn't. So once I'd sort of grasped that and came up with a plan, I, I was I was cool. What I did was, and you'll have to bear with me, titles sometimes I forget, but all around the world, is that what we're talking yep. about? So that was a really big orchestra. I can't remember exactly, but let's say 40 plus. And 
it was a very long track, I seem to remember. You'll tell me how long it was. It was it, around eight minutes, I think. That's right. There was a lot of repetition in the track, and I wasn't sure exactly where Noel wanted the strings to be. So I gave the orchestra a kind of roadmap on their stands, apart from the music, was, I can't remember exactly how I did it, but let's call it A, B, C, D, or even one, I think one, two, three, four. Mm. So I would say uh, that the track would start and Noel would give me the nod and I'd hold my hand up with two fingers, <laughs> um, which would then give the musicians a signal to go to riff number two. That really worked well. And I think what, what that, everyone was very happy with that. And, and we eventually got to a place. I don't know in the end how they used it because each unit of, of string music, if you like, was separate. You could move it around. Mm. You know, it's cut and, cut and paste. You could move it to a different song, different part of the song. So not sure how that worked, but certainly on the day it worked. I always remember we had a brass section, we had trumpets, and I think it was who said, uh, can't we have a bark trumpet? The bark, bark trumpet's like the one in Penny Lane, very high uh, classical instrument, mm. beautiful, beautiful sound. And maybe that's what inspired it. Anyway, the uh, trumpet players didn't have that because they only bring their regular trumpets. They'd have to be told to bring uh, the B-flat uh, piccolo. So I remember there was a kind of hiatus at the end of the session where we waited for the trumpet player to send a taxi or get his wife, I think, to send a taxi <laughs> back to air with the, uh, the B-flat piccolo trumpet, which was then used whether, again, I don't know whether it ended up on the track, but it was certainly played. You highlight there a bit of a clash of cultures, I guess, and... Was that an issue? Because I guess if you're in a four-piece rock and roll band, there's four of you in a studio. If something gets recorded, you can change it on the fly. If you don't like how something sounds, you can make instant changes. You can say, look, Bonehead, do that again. I want it in a different way, for example. If you've got a 40-, 50-piece orchestra, surely that's much more difficult to then make those changes because the, the, you've, got, you've got notation, you've got sheet music, you've got professionals there that have come in as session musicians... Did the band understand the pressures that were on you in those scenarios? No, uh, and nobody does. And, and that's why I've made a reasonable living over the last 50 years <laughs> <laughs> to, to bridge that gap because you're absolutely spot on. It's a very good description you've come up with, which is that classical musicians are highly, highly trained robots. I wouldn't pay that to their face. <laughs> they are very, very skillful in playing what's in front of them. They're not at all adaptable to improvisation or changing things on the fly. So you're absolutely right. There is a clash there. And I've spent many years dealing with that. So if the star, the band, suddenly say it's X, Y, and Z and not ABC, then it's my job to dictate that to the orchestra. And most of the time it works. Sometimes it's, it's a disaster because what the artist is asking for is suddenly so far away from... Mm what we've got in front of us, that it's, it's impossible. That very, very rarely happens. Funnily enough, one, one time it almost happened was with Oasis, and they had sent me a track, Can You Put Strings On It? And so I did. And I turned up at the studio a few days later with the score and parts, and uh, they were playing a song on, on the multi-track. And I said, oh, what's that? And they said, oh, that's the song. I said, no, it isn't. It was almost unrecognisable <laughs> from 
what they had originally sent me. So that was an extreme case. And I had to literally sit down. I remember there was a studio in the King's Road that had a billiard table. And I sat at the billiard table, scratching out brand new parts. Oh. And eventually we got there. But it, 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 it's an oft-told tale that the, the clash of cultures, you're absolutely right, can be a problem. You talk about the clash of musical cultures there. What about the clash of more traditional cultures, I guess? Because here you've got a band who were, at the time, flying very high in the world of music. They were living life to the excess. I've heard stories about around the recording sessions of various substances being banded around, as there was through the entirety of Oasis' careers. Whereas then you've got musicians more used to playing in far more refined situations in opera houses and in theatres and whatnot. Was there any friction that was generated between those two cultures coming together as well? It's a very pertinent question. I have to be a bit careful. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be sued for libel, but you're right. There were a lot of stuff going on with, with, let's call them the artists. I I do remember very vividly, but I'm not going (laughs) to tell you about it. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, the musicians nowadays, I mean, if you went back 40 years, I think you'd find a very, very different culture from the classical guys. They were really, really, uh, you know, very anal about what they were playing and wouldn't entertain anything else. It's really changed now. And the guys who are in the session world, you know, they grew up with the Beatles and so on. So they, they know all mm. that stuff. And it's, it's not alien to them anymore. I mean, I don't think that, the string players rushed into control and said, what's that you're taking? Right. I, don't think, I don't think they cared. Talk to me about how this worked between you and Noel in terms of creating these orchestral moments on the album, because Noel Gallagher, undoubtedly a great songwriter, but also, I'd say, a fairly simple songwriter. He's brilliant at writing simple one-line melodies. But with you, he's asking you to add layers and layers and build out a sound. So... Did he direct you in that? Did he say, this is what I want to hear? Or was it a case of, go away, give me something that goes with this? So you're absolutely right. He is the master hook maker. And that is such a rare talent. Very few people have that ability to produce an instant sing-along, easy-to-remember hook. Much derided, you know, by, by critics, but it's actually incredibly hard to do. So yes, you're right. In terms of what he asked me to do, the very, very first thing I did with him was whatever. And I remember the management called me up through various contacts and would I meet this guy who wasn't at that time big news. I mean, I didn't really know much about them. So Noel walked in and sat down and played. Firstly, he played the song, which is fine. And I recorded that. But then he was very specific. He played the opening riff, which, which you'll know, I'm sure. And he was very clear that that's what he wanted. So uh, in that sense, he was absolutely on it. Having said that, that was it in terms of input. He, you know, that was the intro and uh, the rest was kind of up to me. What I did know, though, was that he was a huge Beatles fan. And I remember a bit later going to his house, which was full of Beatles memorabilia. I took that uh, if you like interest and to look at stage further I did things on that track which were stylistically a lot like the George Martin tracks specifically things like I'm a walrus and so on so brought strawberry fields which obviously Noel had not mentioned but I just knew that was the moment to do it no but to answer your question he directed somewhat 
By the time you got to be here now, was it still that level of input or had you kind of almost earned their trust, for want of a better phrase, where they just would let you get on with what you thought worked? Yes, exactly. I think by that time we built up a trust. I mean, whatever was a massive hit. So I think he then trusted me to do whatever I want. I mean, there was occasional, can you do it like this? But most of the time it was left up to me. You mentioned the Beatles thing, which is obviously something that is filtered through all of Oasis's work. And I think in particular on Be Here Now, it comes to the front in lyrics and in music videos even, and in the strings and the brass that's used, particularly on, I'd say, all around the world has got some big kind of influences from the Beatles in there. It was that conscious in your inspiration when creating the the strings and brass sections for this. Were you making conscious references to other songs in the Beatles back catalogue? Yes, generically. I, I don't think I specifically said, let's get that riff off such and such a song. But as I just mentioned, you know, there were, there's one device that George Martin uses a lot with the Beatles, which uh, if this is too music anorak stuff, stop me. But he does a thing where if the track is, is going along and ding, 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 whatever it is, he deliberately has the strings playing in triplets against it. So it's ding, 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 da, 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 da. So it's three against four. And it's, it's really effective. I don't know where he got it from, but I certainly pinched it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, generically, I certainly referenced the Beatles, but not specific songs, apart from maybe one or two riffs. Before I let you go, Nick, I want to talk about maybe if there's one outstanding moment from those recording sessions for you, one particular memory. When I spoke to Nick Bryan before, he said one of his memories was actually of you trying to conduct the orchestra for all around the world with Liam Gallagher dancing around the recording studio, waving his arms about all over the place and trying to put you off. So I'm wondering whether you've got a similar or maybe a different memory of the making of that well, album. I, I can give you two, actually, but I certainly remember that one. So back to whatever, we went into a little studio. It was a string quartet, four players. And the, the, the ritual, as I'm sure you know, is you, you play the song, you play the chart with the song, and then you start recording for real. So we did a run-through, which, had, which I didn't know was being recorded. And I think in the middle of it, a music stand fell over, or somebody said, oh, fuck, I've made a wrong note, or something like that. Anyway, so there, you know, there was sort of, you know... It, it was an interrupted performance, put it that way. Anyway, so at the end of that, <clears throat> I said to Noel, right, well, let's start doing it. He said, why? I said, well, it was full of stuff. It was full <laughs> of noise and mistakes. He said, I can't do his accent, but he said, see you in the pub. And that is the version. I mean, if you you know, wanted to put your binoculars on it, there's, there's stuff in there that shouldn't have been. Wow. Uh, and the other quick story then is the same song, we did it in a video studio because Noel wanted a video of the song with the string players visible. So we all turned up at this uh, film studio and the guys, you know, came along with the parts and their instruments. We did three or four takes and Noel said, it's too straight. It's too middle-class, too bourgeois, whatever. Mm. Anyway, he disappeared. (laughs) And an hour or so later, several crates of beer appeared <laughs> and basically he got them pissed and they were absolutely off their heads and if you look at the video uh i think somebody's lying on the floor right. <laughs> and somebody's dancing around i mean it was mayhem 
I didn't drink because I thought I better stay straight here because, you know, God knows what's going to happen. But the guys completely lost it. And that was exactly what Noel wanted. He, he wanted a kind of chaotic thing, I guess, to unsanitize the classical music thing. Mm. Do you think you learned from that experience? Do you think there's anything you took away <laughs> from that, the idea that it doesn't need to be perfect, that you can have little imperfections and moments within it? Not really. Okay. My OCD and anal, you know, is too strong. It's just a wrong way. I need to change it. But I get, what I do get is the, the vibe. I get the rock and roll vibe very much so. And I get, and he was, you know, the king of the rock and roll. He and his brother were king of the rock and roll vibe. So bless him. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Really have enjoyed speaking to you about Oasis and Be Here Now. Lovely. Thank you very much. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. I have no doubt after listening to all that, you want to go and get stuck into the album, listen to it all the way through, and I strongly recommend it. Thank you very much to Nick, Nick, James, and Brian for their time on today's Excess Long Player. Celebrating Oasis be here now. If Oasis is your band, if you love them as much as I do, do listen back to the Definitely Maybe episode of this podcast where I speak to Alan McGee, boss of Creation Records, about the inception and recording of Oasis's debut album. As well as that, there's a load of other classic indie albums to get stuck into, so delve back into the back catalogue and make sure you've hit subscribe or follow wherever it is you're listening to this podcast so you get the next episode about another classic indie album as soon as it's ready. Cheers for your ears. I'll see you next time. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester.